0: We take our Bibles for our Bible study tonight and go to First Peter chapter two. I was uh, as I was studying, I was laughing with myself and telling myself, one day when I get to heaven, I'm going to look at Peter in the most gracious and loving way I'm go- I can and go, really Peter, you go from government to slavery. Thank you so much. But uh, it's, just, it's been, a, it's been a, a good study, it's been a, a convicting study, and hopefully as we, we go through this passage tonight, we'll be able to, uh, to glean some truths that, that look into our society and into our lives as a whole and be able to apply these next couple of verses uh, as Peter, as we can unpack what Peter is, is saying to us. You know, we're constantly hearing in our society anymore about the idea of reparations, payment for atrocities that have been committed in the past, you know, in our culture, you know, we, we look and say we want to, you know, pay $400,000 for situations that are recently occurring, or we want to uh, look and say we want to, you know, pay, pay for atrocities that have occurred because of slavery in our past, or because of the situations that occurred with uh, the natives and the trails of tears, and the, the, the wrongful, a lot of them based on wrong things that have happened, but we, we hear a lot about that idea of uh, paying back the reparations, and when we look at our history, there are there are moments in our history, there are things that occur as Americans that we have to look and say, they weren't good. You know, we can try and spin them however we want, but one of those things is slavery. When we, when we look at the concept of slavery, and it's a real part of our history, and it really happened, and it, it was just, it was one of those things in America that, quite frankly, we wish never happened, and yet it's part of human history, and it's part of something that has occurred. But for us as Americans, when we come to the scripture, and we've talked about our American lens, and we've talked about our, our biblical lens, when we come to this passage here of, of dealing with slavery, dealing with servitude, we, we can't help but have this lens, this filter, that we look back in our culture and say, wow, these atrocities happened, and it was happening in Bible times. And we have to be really careful that we don't read our American slavery into biblical slavery. Now, I'm not looking and saying that slavery and servitude did not happen in the Bible times. We'll talk about that here in a second. But when we look at this phrase, servants, verse, verse 18, where Peter, Peter looks and says, okay, servants, be subject to your masters. When we go to that passage and we hear that and we see that, at first glance, it feels very inappropriate. We look at something that we, as a culture, have come to now disdain, to say we don't like it, we don't care for it, we wish it wasn't something that was part of our history. And then we look and say, wait, were Peter and even Paul, were, were, they, were they pro-slavery? Were they all in favor of this? And we're looking and saying, it's such an atrocity. And so we have to, when, when we go to this, we have to look and say, how do we answer some of these questions? There's a firestorm of questions that come out why does the Bible speak out more against slavery? Why doesn't Peter just reject this institution outright? Is, he really expected, uh, is it really expected for a slave to respectfully submit to a master? And I wanna take a, a few moments and before we dive fully into the passage, answer, answer a little bit about slavery and what does the Bible say? Because as we go in our society, one of, those, one of the things that is lobbied against us or launched against us in offensive is the fact that how can, how can you support a biblical concept or look at the, how can I get behind a gospel or a Bible that was pro-slavery? Because we, that's how we read it with our American mindset. So having that apologetic, having that ability to defend quickly and just say, hey, here's what the Bible, Bible talks about in relationship to that. The temptation for us is just look at this passage through our American history, and we cannot do that. We can't look and say that it was a one-for-one, one, everything was the same. Because when we look at slavery in America, I mean, it's, it's a pretty straightforward dynamic. Slavery in America was something that was considered, it was permanent. It was once you were a slave, you were always a slave. And, and some of this comes from a, a study by a, an individual named Benjamin Leonard out of the University of Chicago, 2007. He was wrestling through his Christianity and wrestling through the cultural dynamics of slavery and, and all that was starting to happen in 2007, 2008, and looking at all of that and saying, how does this, how does this match up? So he, he intentionally did lots of historical and ancient studies to try and understand what did the Bible say, what did it mean when it was talking about some of the slavery ideas? In America, it was permanent, and it was based on, a, it was a racial basis. I, I don't think, I would, yes, there might have been some random exceptions, but overall, there was a basis of the fact that Americans saw an opportunity for a permanent institution in our history to have African Americans or Africans as as slaves. We, we know that to be true. It would be nearly impossible to enforce a permanent slavery among whites, but it was very easy to to enforce it among blacks because there are places, there are times where in history, they would brand that we didn't do that, but there, were, there was an easy way for Americans to do it. Oh, you're black, you were a slave. Oh, you're white, you're not. And that's sort of, I know it's broad brushing, but at the same time, that was that general concept. So at the heart of American slavery was the perception that dark-skinned people bore less of God's image than white-skinned people did. That, that was just, we can argue the, the minutiae details, but at the heart of it, that's, that's what it was. But for us to take that concept and just translate it into the Bible when Peter says, servants, that's, that's not a good way for us to study the Word of God. We want to understand God's Word in its historical culture. What was happening in the history? For, for example, in the Roman Empire, there were basically three classes of people. There were Roman citizens. The Roman citizens had full rights, full protection under the law. Do you remember Paul gets beat in Acts chapter 16? And after he gets beaten, he says, you're going to come and take me out of jail because I'm a what? I'm a Roman citizen, and you just crossed the line, bud. You just went further than you were allowed to because he had full citizenship in that passage. Now, we know from history there were what are called the patricians, the upper class, the plebeians, which were the common folk, everyone else. But basically, the Roman citizens were divided into those two groups. There were also a group in the Roman Empire called the freemen. The free men had the protections of of the government, and yet they didn't have all of the abilities to do everything uh, that a Roman citizen would. They were often the businessmen coming from foreign, foreign areas, coming into the Roman Empire, and they were allowed to do interactions and interact with people, and so they were considered the free men. And then the third group was the servant class. So the servant class... It is estimated that in biblical times, about one-third of the Roman Empire was a servant class. Right around 60 million people were in this, this class of servitude, or the translation and the talking about sometimes of, of slavery. There were men and women who were employed as managers, helpers in the home. They did agricultural things. They, they, were all, they did lots of the odd jobs. It was just your job was that servant class. What we must avoid uh, is that all slaves back in Bible days, it was just all manual labor. In fact, many in this class were doctors and teachers. They were writers, accountants. They were the ones who were tutoring in the homes. They were secretaries. They would take care, if you had a shipping company, you would have servants slaves who would run your boat. They would be your captain of your boat, and they would do some of these different things. So we can't just look and say it was, oh, everybody out in the cotton field picking cotton in the Roman Empire. It was a, a completely different dynamic. In fact, most of the work in Rome was done by slaves. The Roman attitude, it was interesting when I was reading this, said that there, is, uh, there was no point of being a master of the world and doing one's own work. So they let the slaves. Do that and then let the citizens just live in pampered idleness. So, if you were a Roman citizen, you were living the high life and you had people you employed to do all of your work. And so, in slavery and servitude in Rome, historically speaking, I put interesting because it's different than what we think when we think slavery, when we think servitude. Slavery was not a, usually a permanent condition in life in the Roman Empire. Now, there were instances where there were. There were moments where maybe people, you know, committed heinous crimes and then they became permanent slaves. There were those who still did and kept people permanently, but it was seen as a temporary condition on the pathway to citizenship. I had to put it in there. Uh, It was a pathway to citizenship or freedom. So you would be a slave, but you were working your way through to become a freedman or become a Roman citizen fully. So it was not, we can't look and say American slavery, permanent condition, therefore Roman slavery, permanent condition. Historically, that is not true. In fact, slaves had the status and the power that were connected with their master. So if your master was higher up in the Roman empire, you had more clout. You had more status as one of their slaves, as one of their servants. And at times it was even desirable. People wanted to be slaves because it could improve your lot in life. You might be, you might have been, you know, an agrarian out in the field and doing the fields, and you look and say, wait, there's a Roman senator who wants a butler, needs a butler. I will place myself in slavery to him, in servitude, and be that because that brings with me more status. That brings with it more pay. And so there was a, there was a different dynamic in the Roman Empire. It would be wrong for us to think that the lot of slaves were always wretched and unhappy, and that they always uh, were treated cruelty cruelly cr- with cruelty most slaves were loved trusted members of the family now granted there's the other end too but the roman empire was built on this idea of we're wealthy We are employing those and they were called servants. They were called slaves. They were put in that position. Now it's important to note, even though the person was still considered a person, they had no legal rights. As a servant, as a slave, you you didn't have any legal rights. And that's where the church started to really mess up with the Roman Empire, and they didn't like it. Because now the church, you have you have patricians, plebeians, full-blown citizens, you have slaves. And they're all coming to the same place and they're all seen as equal. There's no, there's no Jew nor Gentile. There's no wealthy, no poor. There's all, there's at the foot of the cross, everything's equal. So the Roman citizens would look and say, wait, whoa, you know, especially the wealthy, this could cause problems because if these slaves start to feel their, their freedom, we, we, could see a, we could see a problem. So many ancient people even, they voluntarily placed themselves in slavery in Rome which to us is completely foreign. We look and go, I don't want to be placed in servitude to anybody. I don't want to be a slave to anybody because, again, we're thinking from that American perspective. But the reason they were doing this, it's a term called manumission. Manumission was basically this. If you read historical stuff with with Rome and all, it was the idea that through good behavior or maybe doing something really well for the person that you served— you or earning enough money you could purchase your citizenship you could purchase your freedom in fact do you remember when paul is talking with the the roman the roman centurion i believe it was and the centurion in acts 22 looks at him and says well i'm am a roman citizen and i paid i paid greatly for it that's the idea that he paid for to 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 go from being a slave or being indentured as a servant to now being free. And Paul looks and says, well, I'm, I'm a natural born citizen. I have a little bit even more clout than you do. But there is that dynamic, even biblically, we see that people would pay and be able to earn their, their freedom. So we must not assume that all masters were cruel. We must not assume that everything was horrific, that it was just bad. But we do have to realize that there was, there was some of that. Because if there was not any issues with cruelty by human, uh, by human masters, then Peter wouldn't have to write, and he wouldn't be writing this area uh, here. So quick observations on slavery, just to give us a historical background. Slavery played a prominent part in the lives of the, those who lived in Peter's day. It was, I mean, 60 million strong in an empire. That's a lot of people in this class. Okay. Slavery was the central labor force for the Roman economy. So if Peter if, if people look and say, well, why didn't Peter just come right out and just you know say, do away with all slavery? If Peter and Paul became known for opposing this institution, the Roman authorities are going to immediately go in and squelch that. They're going to put it down, perhaps even irreparably dam- or damage the movement. Yes, I know the gates of hell will not prevail against the, the church. And yet at the same time, they were being wise. They were looking and saying, we need to be important. It's important for the survival of Christianity for its slaves to be good slaves, which again, we're, we got, we have to take off those American lenses. Yes, there was cruelty, and yet many of them were living in a situation. What, is, what does Paul say to Onesimus? Go back to who? Philemon, who was his what? His master. Okay, so it wasn't, it wasn't that it was, a, you know, Onesimus had to go back and deal with it. And yet at the same time, Paul's looking and saying, this is an institution, it's here, it's present. Let's learn to live and be, be wise within it. Slavery in the Bible is not condemned as a social evil that the Christian master should cease to be part of. So it does, nowhere in the scriptures do you have masters don't, don't take part in this anymore. In fact, it doesn't even say that slaves should seek to overthrow their masters. They are told, slaves are told, be in submission to your masters. So Christian masters, if you can look up the passages, Colossians chapter 4, not to abuse your authority. This was, you know, radical because some were abusing their authorities. Some were not. If you're doing good, continue to do good as as an authority, as an employer, as the one over them. Christians were encouraged to obtain their freedom if possible, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about, hey, if you're able to purchase your freedom, purchase it. And then be a free man that you can use for the sake of the gospel to go forward. And if Christians could not attain that freedom, Paul reminds them in Colossians chapter 3 that you submit to your masters. Peter reminds them in 1 Peter chapter 2, submit to your masters. So slavery was an institution within that society. It was established by man, not by God. It is not one of the institutions. Man has created this dynamic. God never permits his people to use slavery as a means of permanent exploitation. That's why American slavery was heinous. We should never try and justify it or try to walk around and say, well, it was just necessary for the American South to... No, it was, it was wrong. It, was, it should not have been something because God is not wanting us to just abuse and use people in order for our own benefit. And so that's so there slavery is practiced in North America and many other places around the world. I believe that is condemned in the Word of God. First Peter or First Timothy chapter one. Jump over there just real quick. First Peter or First Timothy chapter one. And again, why go through this? Because these are questions that come up in our society now, especially as you, with, with different things like Black Lives Matter movements and some of the different uh, dynamics of reparation payments and different things. These questions come up, and we have to be able to at least give a, a, a cognizant a biblical answer to say, well, wait, let's talk about what this was historically, and does the Bible ever condemn it? First Timothy chapter, chapter 1, down in uh, verse number 8. Uh, but we know that the law is good, and if men use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is made for a righteous man, but the, for the lawless and the disobedient. For the ungodly and for the sinners, and for unholy and profane, for murderers and fathers and, mur- uh, and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, talking about homosexuality, for men-stealers. The word their men-stealers, is the idea of those who would take men and put them into a forced slavery, in, into a position where you did not have an option, you were taken, you were thrown into that, you were never, it was never voluntary, it was never that. Paul, what does he call this? He says, this is contrary to sound doctrine. This is unholy, this is profane, this is ungodly. So the word literally means there, the men's stealers is the person who would take a person captive in order to sell him or her into slavery. So for the, for people to say, well, the Bible never condemns slavery. That is not true. First Timothy, Paul condemns it in no uncertain terms. But there are times when if we go just back with our American mindset and lens, and we look at these passages where it talks about go back to your master, submit to your master, we can look and say, well, they're, they're pro. No, we have to understand slavery in its culture, in its context, overall was a different beast than what North American slavery and modern, modern 1800s slavery was. And so just understand some of those truths. Take some of those verses, write them down if you ever come across or those questions, those questions arise. Now, how does Peter use this term? Because that's the passage we're in now. We're back in, in first, uh, first Peter. How does Peter use the term for servant or slave? The term that he uses is actually not the normal word for slave, not the word doulos. In fact, he uses doulos, which is up in uh, verse number, uh, where is it, verse 16. But as servants or doulos of God, as slaves of God, We're, we are in our freedom, we are servants, we are slaves to our master God. But the word that he uses here is actually a word for a household term. It, it starts off with the word oikos, which is the, the word for home. He's not talking about just an agrarian slave. He's using a broad term for those individuals who are considered managers of the home, helpers in the home. It's a Joseph in Potiphar's house where he has all these freedoms. He has all this ability to do this. He is a steward of the home. And so that's what he is. In this field, historically, you read through, it can be a teacher, it could be a field worker, a butler, a maid. It's, it's across the board. So Peter's not using a specific word to look and say slaves who are beaten and thrown into brutal, cruel situations. Many of these individuals were actually more educated even than their masters. They were well-educated. They had responsible positions. You would trust them in your home. And you go back to that story of Joseph and Potiphar. I mean, he had, he had every right to do—that's how much Potiphar trusted him. So much so that, I mean, he was even at home alone with his wife and he still trusted him. There was all of that. That's how much these, the slaves often were trusted in these situations. They were domestic servants. And so as Peter is looking, he's speaking about the everyday worker in the Roman Empire. He's looking and saying, as you're going about your everyday servants, slaves. That's They knew what they were. That was their position. That was their lot. Though they were aspiring, because it wasn't permanent, aspiring to something greater, Peter looks and says, hey, when you're working in your everyday life—so they had little rights to no rights. We understand that, but they did. They were typically being compensated. They were typically uh, historically treated fairly. There were moments, as it goes with any empire— you have bad leadership, things get worse. And that historically happened with Rome as well. But they were, they were treated fairly. They were typically able to earn their way out of their station in life. And many times in that situation, they were placed there by their own volition. They put themselves there. So don't, don't read into our American tragic situation, which was heinous, directly back in. The Roman Empire had slaves had servants, but many of them put themselves in because that's how they made their money. That's how they made their living. And so as Peter talks to those individuals, those domestic servants is the word he's using. As you're going about your everyday in your workplace, what is he saying? Probably the modern day parallels that we could, we could think of this, if we wanted more of a direct parallel, would be the individual who puts five years in the military in order to go to college. You know, you're going to pay that, you're going to pay it back. The scholarship. Who, who looks and says, okay, I'll go to this school, and the coach looks, all right, you're gonna do this, 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 that you have no say. You're going to follow my regiment, you're going to do, and if you don't, guess what? You're not going to have your scholarship anymore. You are you are mine. That's, you know, the coach looks and says, That's that's it. It's the it's the lawyer who gets their education or the doctor who has their residency paid by an, by an institution, and they're looking and saying, You're gonna be here for another five years, because you have basically sold your soul to the company store. You're here, that's, that's a lot of the idea of what is happening in this time period. And so we, we don't wanna just look back and go, oh, cruel. Yes, there were, and we're gonna see that in the passage. Peter uses this broad term, and as most commentators see it, it has this idea of us as workers in our employment situation, placing ourselves under in authority, our boss, the man, the company, whatever term you choose to to use, that's where that's where Peter is seeing us. He's saying, so as you, as I go to work this week, we place ourselves under us, our individual, whoever that may be. For some of you it's yourself. And then you, you have to still wrestle through Okay, maybe it's my stockholders. Maybe you're there. You still place yourself in those positions. So Peter says this. He says, look what he says. You servants, you be subject to your masters with all fear. So he, he uses that word that we talked about last time, the hupotasso. It's a voluntary placing of yourself under an authority. So Peter says to the, to the servants, the slave Christians that are there, you go this week you place yourself under that authority if servants were to do good as peter is commending them to be doing in their life then they had to place themselves under their master ephesians paul talks about he talks about it in colossians as well so submission and servitude it was not a unilateral condition here's what i mean they were not slaves were not required to submit to every master what does it say submit to which master your master it was specifically to your master, not all the masters. It was, that's different from American society slavery. American slavery, American servitude was if you were black, you were put under. That's not the case here. Now, I know there were northern, you know, freed, freed uh, black men. I understand that. But in the, the whole scope of slavery, so please don't, let's not parse words here. Uh, but even though that's what we're doing all the time, uh, he talks about, Peter clarifies the heart attitude of the worker. Do you see what he does here? He says, you be subject, you yourself, to your master. And he says, with all respect. Now, the question of the respect, is it to the master or is it to God? Where does the respect lie? The word that's used here is phobos, the phobias that we give. But it's, it's the word that is used continually by Peter to talk about, um, to talk about their fear, their respect, their desire of God. That we fear the Lord. In fact, he just used it a verse before that says fear God. So he tells us to, to have some fear. Um, and the word actually, the word order here is interesting. That it, it's, it's backwards from what we would normally think. So he, he says, you be subject with all respect then to your masters. So as you look at it, as we see it, our motive for submission, our attitude for our heart when we go to work is not, I fear the boss. It's, I reverence God and God expects me to work. God expects me to be diligent. God expects me to take his principles, his way of living into my service into my work, into my place of employment. So I don't divorce my Christianity from my workplace. I take those same Christian principles and I put them to practice when I am working, when I am, when I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing on that daily basis. Now, I can imagine, like you, like me, even in the last you know, series, working through submission, we're gonna ask those questions like, well, how far? like How much do we have to submit? Are there any limits to my submission as, a, as an employee? is, you know, what, are, what if the expectations are unreasonable? What, what if Peter, you know, this situation turns really south and my boss is just, they're terrible. No, we, we have a different perspective in that we can just say, okay, we're done with the job and we walk away. Wasn't always the case in Roman empire times. They, were, they had, you know, sold themselves for maybe five, ten years of servitude in that position. Some of them even, they're, they're there, they were born into that class, and they were slaves, and they were going to remain until they could earn enough or do something to work out of that. So what if, the, what if those situations turn south? What do we do? You know, what if they ask me to do something that's not Christ-like, but I'm supposed to submit? It goes back to the same logic and arguments that we've talked about over the last weeks. We are to submit, and yet there are moments that, that we will not. Now, he goes on, he says, not only to the good, and this is this is where it rubs. You know, I, I I'm in a unique situation. Not just because he's standing over there, but I got a pretty good boss. Okay. It's it's not I don't I don't have to deal with the unjust boss. Okay, so I'm I'm in a unique, but some of you you're in the situation where this rings true. Or it has it has rung true in your life, where it's easy to obey. The good and the gentle. Many of them had those situations where they were loved, they were trusted. And that type of individual, have you ever had it in your life where some bosses are far easier to work for than others? Absolutely. You know, and some of you have been in situations where you're, you're with bosses, you're in employment situations where the boss asks you to do things that are just, they're not ethical. They, they, they butt heads, you're, you're, that worldview collides between your Christianity and what the boss is asking, or what the boss demands. And so it's, it's sadly to say that most the, all the bosses can't fit under that good category. And Peter understood that. So he, he looks and he says, even to the unjust master, the word that's used for unjust is where is we get scoliosis from. That it's bent, that it's curved, that he is perverse, that he is crooked, he has changed what has happened. They're dishonest. It's the, it's the Laban situation where it's like, sure, you can have my daughter work for me for seven years. Great, you work for seven years. Ha <laughs> ha, guess what? You want, the, you want that daughter? You're going to work another seven years. You're completely dishonest. You, you twisted it. You, were, you perverted your word, your truth. You were dishonest. It has the idea of somebody who's morally bankrupt, who's somebody who's harsh. And so this, this word, Peter looks and says, even to the dishonest, submit, be wise, So they were to pay, they were to be dishonest. They they might be in bad working conditions. The the pay might have been, you know, I'll say this, but I only pay you this. And Peter's looking and saying to them, again, a little bit different situation. They can't walk away. You can walk away. They look and say, "I, I can't walk away. And so Peter says, keep your good Christian testimony. We cannot try to simply whitewash the fact, and I think this is important, to the fact that well, in Bible times, it wasn't the same slavery, so everybody was really nice and it was all, let's not do that either. Let's look and say, okay, there were cruel masters. There were unjust masters in the Bible time. And the Bible condemns these attitudes. The Bible condemned those actions. And so Peter goes on in the passage and he says, not only to those, those good and gentle, but also to the unjust. He's calling the Christian service, servant community, the slave community of that day, to manifest a completely different behavior, one that transcends the normal dynamics of society. Remember his pivotal point, that Peter is there, and when he expects us to be living exceptional lives of love and holiness in society so that the world can see a radical difference in, in, their, in, our, in our lives. And so these individuals were called to, to, to live that way. So in doing this, I mean, from a Roman perspective, the economy's not hurt, and yet those Christians are looked favorably by their employers, by their bosses, by their masters. They're like, man, I just treated that guy really brutally, and yet he's still working hard for me. What's going on with that guy? I need to find out more. And maybe it brings on the opportunities to share the gospel, because they saw that there were greater issues that were more important than just their immediate justice. It wasn't, well, you did this wrong, I need this right now. At times... They would take that as a backseat, and they would look and say, "The greater good right now is that I want to share the gospel and I want to be a good example to yes, they didn 't pay me what they said they were going to pay me rather than fly off that, the handle, treat them horribly i 'm just going to continue to show them the love of Christ and to work diligently and hard for them. The name of Jesus was at stake, and so these individuals they saw the potentiality of salvation to somebody who was a slave to sin, which I find ironic because you think about it. The slaves are free and they're trying to live in such a way, submitting themselves, living freely, living righteously before their masters who are free politically, and yet they're a slave to sin. And they, they saw that what that individual needed more than my political justice was that person needed to be freed from the slavery to sin. And so they were willing to put themselves in that situation And so, you know, I would argue that as we look at the texts, as we understand, once again, masters do not have complete and absolute authority over their slaves. They don't have that situation. So if a believer is commanded to violate God's will, then slaves are obligated to disobey even if they suffer. So if a master, a secretary, is told by the boss, I want, you to, uh, I want you to falsify this information in a letter and send it out. Or if an accountant is told, hey, I want you to adjust these numbers, I want you to cook the books a little bit, slide this here, do this here, and you're like, oh, you know, that's going to be dishonest. We had a, I know of a situation where people were told to ship things to China, mark that you ship like 100 units, but only ship 50 of them, and we'll tell them that it got lost in transit. So what do you do in those situations? You're told to be dishonest. You're told to to violate your Christian principles. At that point, once again, that idea of submission is voluntary. The obedience factor is that there are times that we have to obey God. So why would someone endure? Why would someone to submit to the employers, even to a harsh one? Because Peter says, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, he lays out the believer's motivation to submit even to somebody who's unjust. It does not mean you have to do what the unjust individual says. You might suffer the consequences for not doing it to look at the boss and say, I cannot do that. In my my conscience before God, I cannot do that. That would be dishonest. That would be deceitful. That would be tax evasion. That would be, you you fill in the blanks. Some of you have been in those situations where you've had to call out individuals and you've paid the consequences because of it, and yet you have to endure. You go through the the suffering, the pain that is there. He says, for this is a gracious thing. Literally, it wins favor with God. It was an expression of something that was favorable. God looks upon us when we are treated unjustly because of doing righteously, he looks at that as something favorable. He says, well done, that's good. It describes whether someone is pleased or not. In fact, at the end of verse 20, you get nearly the exact same expression. What Peter is doing is he's putting it at the end. He's saying everything in verses 19 and 20, it's all driving to a point. It's all driving us to understand that we need to be doing whatever it is he's trying to to tell us to do. So this reminds us to tie the entire section together. Uh, He talks about when mindful. Now, this phrase is interesting. It has the idea of being conscious of God. So he says, Be sur- subject to your masters, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the, the froward, the unjust ones. For this is thankworthy, or this is the idea of this is something that is pleasing, gracious to God, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief. The idea of for conscience toward God is that I do things with the mind of God in, in, in mind. We don't endure difficulty out of just some, some stoic idea of like, if I just endure the pain and I endure the suffering and the, I just go through it, God will be pleased. Peter is looking and saying, when you go through this, you handle it. And the reason you're in the suffering is because of your knowledge of God. You're, you're doing your employment with a God perspective. And so now all of a sudden you have, you have people and looking and saying, why would you do that? Because I believe this is biblically Right. And then your boss tells you to do this, and you say, I cannot do this because it is biblically wrong. And because of my knowledge of God, my consciousness of God, my mindfulness of God in my life, his instructions show us that we bow our attitude and we end up facing suffering. And it's because of that relationship with God. It's because I am mindfully taking my Christian life to my workplace, that I'm not just saying, well, it's not a big deal. Nobody's going to know. I'll just do this because nobody's going to see me do, the, do X, Y, and Z. I'll get away with it. It won't be a problem. No, we take, we take our integrity. We take the righteousness of God, the mind of God, into everything that we are doing. So Peter subtly is reminding us here that the masters are not the final authority in life. We need to continually be on guard to integrate Christ into our lives because righteous suffering is endured for conscious sake. Now that's gonna come up here when we talk about, there's, there's another kind of suffering. Peter's gonna talk about it right in the next verse. But righteous suffering is endured for conscious sake. I look and say, because before God, as I take the mind of God, I have to live this way. And it might bring about suffering because the boss may not like it. And I can't just, I can't dismiss because it's a decision of masters. It's a decision of my heavenly master or my earthly master. Money, God. Well, if I do this, I might lose my job, but it's wrong. Who do I obey? And I I understand that that's a quick and there's for some of you, you're there and you're living in that moment and you're wrestling through it. Have you you ever seen that, you know, what would you do stuff where they put people in these really awkward situations? And just to see how people would respond. Peter's sort of throwing us in a what would you do situation. He says, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Look what he says. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience sake toward God endures grief suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when you were buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, that's acceptable to God. He, he, he puts us in this situation. And, and what, what Peter's driving is, we still have to obey God rather than man. We still have that responsibility to say, okay, what would we do if our boss asked us to do this? If our stockholders asked us to do this? If our partners asked us to do this? And it comes in conflict with who we are as a believer. We have to decide God or man, God or money, God or my business. And knowing and trusting that God is going to win the day, that God is going to help you through the, the difficult times. You you have to choose. When you get to that point, you're gonna have to make a decision. You choose to disobey your earthly master and not your heavenly master. Well, that idea, the the concept threatened masters even in the Roman times. They started to understand that wait, these slaves, they see a higher authority than me in their life. And if they begin to follow after this higher authority, this could threaten. So there were slave masters who were beginning to punish Christians even harsher because they started to see that. Peter reminds us that though you will slash may face hardship and suffering because of the decision you live to to live righteously as an employee. There there may be those moments. That's that's something we have to wrestle through as believers living in our in our day and age. Do we follow God? Do we follow our employer who may ask us to do something wrongfully? Your relationship with God may at times cause you to deviate from your earthly master's desire. Now when that happens we have to look and say, there, there's, there's going to be potential suffering. You count the cost. You understand what that may mean. And as you, as you wrestle through, you know, responsibilities and what the boss is saying, and do I, I can't do that. I don't feel comfortable. And you're up all night, and you're counting those costs. You have to look and say, I have to choose earthly master, heavenly master, if I choose to go against my earthly master, there are probably going to be consequences. I need to be ready for that. I need to be wise to that. Now, Peter says, what glory is there really is the idea if you get yourself in a situation where you suffer, but you're suffering because you did something wrong. Okay, one may show great resilience and endurance for being punished for a fault, but it's hardly heroic or praiseworthy. That's what he's saying in that first part of verse 20. What, what glory is there? What, what fame? What what power is there? What great thing have you done, if for your own faults, your own sin, your own poor choices, you're punished by your boss? He's he, Peter's looking and saying, "There's no congratulations in that type of suffering." He's like, "You deserved it. You got what you deserved." So there was no, there's no great accolade to that. I think that's important for us to understand when we're when we're interacting with our with our employers is that there are moments where we do things that are stupid, sinful, wrong, bad choices, we don't follow through, and the boss comes down on us. That is not the idea of, oh, look at the righteous suffering. They are so mean to me. because Peter's looking and saying, there are times we do things as employers, and we deserve to be reprimanded. We, we get the paddle, and it, it happens. Um, so when you're a bad employee, Peter's saying, you deserve the consequences. You deserve the suffering that you're getting. You know, if you make those choices that are not wise, it's there. So I believe it's important for us to distinguish between just and unjust consequences. We can't just simply look and, you know, simply, oh, my, my employer is coming down to me because I'm a Christian, because of my relationship with Christ. It could just be, your employer's coming down on you because you deserve punishment, because you're tardy all the time, you're lazy, because you don't get your stuff done. You take extra breaks, you're under quotas, you know, you don't perform. And now they're looking and saying, uh, you need to do this. You're not doing your job. Oh, well, you don't like me because I'm a Christian. Let's be careful that we don't just, you know, use Christianity as our blanket. Oh, the, don't do that. You don't like it when other people do that under different guises and different tags and labels. We need to be the, 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 the example of what good ethics look like when we work. And so Peter is looking and saying, hey, do your job, be the employer. I remember in seminary, we had a guy who he got mad. He was a seminarian and he was, he was upset at the tubing mill we worked at because all the guys who smoked got an extra smoke break. But we didn't get that break. And so he was, he was angry about it. He's like, this is ridiculous. So he started taking extra bathroom breaks, you know, finding his way in and, and he got in trouble for it. They're like you. You can't go to. The, you can't sit in the bathroom for ten minutes every hour. He's like, well, why not? I can I don't smoke. And he just he gave a really bad taste to a number of the people in upper management for Christianity and for some of the seminary guys. We we can't look at that. We, we he deserved the punishment he got. He got like two days off work without pay. He deserved it because he spent probably four days in the bathroom. It was just. It was not. It was not good. We have to look and say there are times where where employers. They, they rightfully so come down on us and we need to take that and we, we don't hide behind the Christian label. You know, so don't, don't just quickly cry Christian hater. You know, Th- there are times that that's gonna be the case. We understand that, but don't just use it because righteous suffering, it must be innocent. It's a result of our godliness, not a result of our sinfulness. So if we're, if we're living in sin, if we're, if we're employers who are not doing, a, living the Christ-like way in our employment then yeah, there's gonna be moments we're going to be chastised and we have to accept that. But Peter says, if when you're doing good or you're suffering to endure, that's what he's, when he says, but if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. That's that same phrase that he uses up in the, in the, in the Greek, same phrase that he uses for this is thankworthy. It's gracious in the eyes of God. So Peter's already introduced this idea of doing good works. He's talked about it a number of times in the passage, and he, he weaves this thread of doing good before the believer. And he's looking and saying, when we're in our workplace, we need to be doing it. So he paints this situation of a slave or a servant who is, who is living right, doing their, doing their job, they're doing good at their job, and yet for some reason, there's, there's not just this coincidence, but because they did right, it coincided or contradicted with the uh, The master's ways, what the master wanted, the master brings out punishment. And remember, this is according to their consciousness, to their God consciousness. That they're living, not because, well, this is just what I want. Once again, it comes back to God is the master, God is our authority. And so because God is the authority and God is the master, I follow his ways. And because I'm following his ways, my boss is not happy. My boss is, my boss is unpleased. And so it's not just this personal preference or choices or just differences. The slave who is enduring the unjust suffering here, it's because of their righteous relationship with God. And now they're being rewarded, you know, in not a good way by the master. And yet, what does it say by God? It says it is acceptable. It is well-pleasing to God. God says, when you're enduring suffering for my sake because you're living righteously in an unrighteous world, God looks and says, well done. You're living the right way. You're living like the example of the one who left heaven, submitted himself, lived righteously, and then yet what happened to him? He endured unjust beatings and suffering. He became the suffering servant as when Peter gets into the next part here, and we'll look at that next time. He's gonna quote out of Isaiah 53 and he's gonna talk about Christ who is the suffering servant. Christ, the motivation we have for this this radical type of living in an employment situation where we endure some of the suffering is because of the example of Jesus Christ. That's where Peter's gonna move to it. He talks about the idea of enduring. That if you will go through and you will suffer for it and you take it patiently or you endure it, It's the idea of being put under pain, going through the hardships, persevering. It suggests that the believer patiently endures or puts up with the mistreatment. They don't seek to completely justify it all. They don't seek to reconcile every dynamic of it. There are moments where that will happen. You have those conversations with the boss. But there are times where you just look and go, I'm gonna submit, I'm gonna do it. This is what the boss has asked me to do. I don't like it but I'm gonna, I don't feel it's right. I don't feel it's equitable. I don't feel that they're thinking through. I don't think that they are treating me as fairly as someone else. And yet it looks and says, okay, you know what? I'm going to endure this. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to live the right way so that potentially I have the opportunity for gospel ministry. I have the opportunity to do good things in that realm because righteous suffering must be endured with godly patience for some of you you're enduring these types of situations and it's been for years. And yet look at what God says, continue to do that because it's thankworthy. It is praiseworthy. God looks down and says, you did the right thing. I know you're suffering. I know you're going through these hardships. And yet you're doing it for the right reasons. Your motive is the the fact that you are following Christ and that you face these hardships and yet he says, keep going endure with patience, with perseverance, push through, continue to live righteously. Even when it's so easy to just say, you know what, forget this. I'm going to go back. I'll do what the boss says because it's really, it's really tight right now financially. I need a job. I need X, Y, and Z. And so continue to live righteously in those moments. Now, the question that comes up is, is the suffering is uh, when it says that the graciousness is of this in the sight of God. Is he talking about the suffering or the endurance being there? Merely enduring the unjust suffering and the accompanying pain is not what is necessarily pleasing to God. What pleases God is us being mindful of God, cultivating a trusting awareness of God's presence and of his never-failing care while we endure pain. To look and to say, I'm enduring because I'm going to live righteously. I'm going to do what God, and if it brings hostility toward me, I'm going to do righteously. If it, makes, if, it, if it brings some hardship, I'm going to live righteously because God has asked me, When we are conscious of the presence of God in our lives. God gives us the necessary strength to bear the pain. He extends us the grace. He extends us the mercy to enable us to respond in a positive way and continually trusting in him. For those of you going through that times, those hard times, trusting God, continually follow after him, knowing that he is a righteous God and he will endure with you. He will persevere. He will help you through those hardships. The endurance here is the act that finds favor with God. Not that we we face suffering. Some people face it because they did stupid things. They deserve, the, they deserve the suffering, the consequences. Peter is looking and saying, in those moments, slaves, employer, employees, you're in those situations where you're enduring hardship because you're living righteously. He says, continue to do that because that is met with the smile of God. With God's approval because you're living righteously. It highlights your allegiance to Him as a master. When we live righteously, And our worlds collide and our bosses are asking us to do this and we say, no, we're going to do this because our master says that, it highlights where our allegiance lies. It lies with God. And so we we do that and it highlights our trust in him as sovereign to know that if I do this, God, and I'm going to show my allegiance to you, it can bring about suffering and hardship. But I am going to trust that as you as sovereign, tell me to live righteously, tell me to do what is right, I'm going to do it. And the consequences and the suffering that come, I, I will endure patiently with your grace and with your strength because you are God. And you have asked me and I want to show my allegiance and I want to trust in you as God. So when we endure unjust hardship, we are doing a gracious thing. In the sight of God. That's what he talks about at the end. This is acceptable with God. So God's character is demonstrated when believers who are treated unjustly nevertheless act honorably and good. So as we go into our lives this week, as we face different, different dynamics with our, with our employment, as we face times where we may be an employer, how do, you, how do you treat people? Are you gonna be the unjust one or are you gonna be a just one? When we're, when we're asked to do things that are not necessarily lining up with Scripture, where will your allegiance lie? Where will your trust be? Our submission to our masters, to our employers, it is the will of God in our life. We are told, command, submit to our employers. We, it's God's will that we do that, even when we don't like what they ask us to do. And that happens to all of us, myself included, but we won't go there. <laughs> we all have that moments where we're asked to do things but it's our job to do our job. That's the Christian ethic. That's the Christian way. God, our, when we go to our work, our submission, it causes God to smile favorably upon our lives because we are doing what he asks us to do. So let's go this week and let's work. Let's be the believers in the, in the workplace that we're supposed to be. Because righteous suffering finds favor and pleases with God is suffering that is done rightly. So for some of you, you're just this week gonna go and say, I'm just gonna submit, I'm gonna do my job, and I'm gonna live righteously. For some of you, you're going through the suffering. Make sure you do it correctly. It's doing it for the right reasons. We're we're doing it because we're doing right. Suffering that finds favor with God, it's patiently endured. And I know for some that time has been, been a while. But continue patiently enduring. And this type of suffering... It endures for the sake of a good conscience before God. Not what I want, but looking and saying, this is how God wants me to live. Therefore, I'm gonna go this week and I'm gonna submit to my employer and I'm gonna do the right things. But if conflict comes and my worldviews collide, I'm going to make the decision that God is my master. I'm going to follow him no matter what because I'm gonna trust him and I'm gonna know that he is sovereign and he will take care of me. So we look and Peter says, submit to our masters. So we go this week, we look and we say, all right, let's be the best employees that our employers have. Not just the hardest workers, but the righteous living ones. Trusting God to take care of our needs. So Father, I pray that you would help us as we we go this week and we seek to serve through our jobs. Lord, understanding that every job that you've given to us is a ministry that you have enabled us to be part of. Lord, I pray for opportunities for each person here to have moments with coworkers to talk about the gospel, to have opportunities to show the love of Christ. And Lord, even if we don't, help us in our ways that we live. Help us to be the hands and feet of Christ. Help our employees to see our employers to see that. Help our coworkers to see the love of Christ going out in our life and in the way we work and in the way we choose to live righteously, even in the moments where our worldviews collide. Lord, we thank you for this small passage, one that's pointed, one that challenges us in an everyday aspect of our work. Lord, we thank you that you challenge us to live righteously, even in the hard times. For it's in your name we pray, amen.